Welcome to the third episode of The Right Side of Maybe, the global guessing podcast where we speak with forecasters about their backgrounds, past forecasts, and how we can all improve at quantified forecasting. Today we are joined by a special guest, Tom Lipte. Tom is a super forecaster and one of the best around. He placed first in the Good Judgment Project 2013 Season 3 cohort, as well as he was on the first place team at the Good Judgment Project Season 4 uh, tournament. He also holds a PhD in electrical engineering from MIT and a CFA. He is also the co-founder of Maybe, a forecasting platform designed to help companies and investors both manage risks and make good predictions. Tom is also a runner and a cyclist, so we'll see if his forecasting chops have helped him in the athletic world as well. Without further ado, Tom, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. So, uh, Tom, um, we we reached out to you because you have a very impressive COVID forecasting background. Uh, but before we get into that, we'd like to sort of, as Andrew was saying in the intro, talk about your background into the space of quantified forecasting. Um, how and when were you first introduced to this concept of quantified forecasting? Uh, it seems like you joined Good Judgment Project early on, so... How'd you hear about that topic? What sold you on the idea of it? Um, and what got you engaged into becoming a better forecaster? Yeah, um, I think my journey started with trying to become a better investor. I'm a Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger fanatic. I read those guys probably back in 2001, kind of became obsessed with them and you know realized that part of a big part of investing is um, essentially forecasting um, company returns, what's gonna happen economically. So that made me, got me into the whole psychology of uh, cognitive bias and trying to identify it in myself and correct it if possible. So I I probably first um, learned about forecasting from uh, Tetlock's book, uh, Expert Political Judgment, which was a long running, I think the first of its kind, studied uh, political scientists over like a 20 year period. Um, and yeah, that, that's, well, that's where it started for me. I, I was also a kind of quantified forecasting. I, I realized that it was important to be well calibrated. And so even well before the Good Judgment Project started, I would give myself um, calibration quizzes on um, trivia. Uh, questions with with uh, known answers and then grade myself to see if I was in fact um, well calibrated. I, I practiced that over hundreds of questions. Um, and what's the benefit of being well calibrated for our, our listeners who might not know? Yeah, just when I, when I say there's a 70% chance of rain tomorrow, I would like it to be that it actually rains 70% of the time when I say that, as opposed, well, most people will end up being overconfident um, when they start. So you'll say um, 90% and it will only happen 70% of the time. And so you can imagine as an investor, you wouldn't want to do that. that um, and as a forecaster, you don't want to do that. It's, you just have an inaccurate view of the world. So practicing these, um, these calibration quizzes um, can, can help give you the feedback to find out if in, indeed you are over, overconfident and then Correct it. And when you first started uh, your forecasting um, process, what did you consider most critical to your 
skill development um, and particularly thinking about at the start of your forecasting process, not, you know, as you became a super forecaster and then became the super of the super forecasters, but at the start of that process, what did you consider most important? Yeah, for me, I did a lot of um, reading of the psychological literature, Michael Nalbison, uh, Phil Tetlock, Danny Kahneman, all those guys. I, I was pretty well read in those books. And I think what I took, you know, what I still take the most just absolute pure joy in is when I was unaware of these cognitive biases, I would, I would read the question that they asked people. I would try to answer it myself. And then they would reveal, you know, Danny Kahneman or Amos Tversky would, would reveal like, okay, so here were the experimental results. And indeed, eight times out of, you know, 10, I would fall into the exact same trap that others fell into, which you could then show was, was logically inconsistent. And I found that absolutely fascinating um, that they could predict exactly how I was going to be irrational. So I still take pure joy whenever I can find um, one of those things that I'm unaware of. And I, I think that that helped me a lot going, I, I, was, I was extremely well-versed before I made my first um, forecast for Good Judgment Project. And do you think that helped you become a super forecaster faster than others by doing a lot of prep work before just hopping in? I, I think so. Cause I mean, I, I, and, and also doing the calibration quizzes myself, I tried to practice as much as I could by myself. Um, so I, I got no, I really didn't learn anything new from the, the training that they provided. Um, I had, I'd read all that for a decade before. Listen, getting back to what you were talking about before, um, you know, I imagine that the margins of improvement as you become a better forecaster may shrink. Um, you know, what were some of the um, skills and what was your experience um, sort of developing as a super forecaster as you sort of got better um, and became more comfortable with forecasting? Um, well, I can say one thing that I, mistake I made, I think that I learned during Good Judgment Project is that the status quo bias is very powerful. Um, and that things take a long time to change in the real world. So I made, I made a few forecasts um, where was, will, will this trade deal get signed? And I would say 30% and then a year would go by and it wouldn't get signed. And then they'd ask the same question again the next year, will the trade deal get signed? <laughs> and I'd say 30% and then it wouldn't get signed again. And then, you know, that happened on a few of these things. And, and I, maybe that's the biggest mistake I made and the biggest thing I learned from forecasting. Uh, so is the status quo bias having a greater, like thinking that the world can change faster than it really can? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Things take a long time to change. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I think that's something that we have in our forecast is very much thinking, just ignoring the reality of of the the status quo as it is right now. Um, it's good to have a, a name for it. Um, when it comes to forecasting, how much time do you spend every week forecasting? And how do you split up that time between, you know, sorting through questions, doing research, uh, rethinking past forecasts? Um, how does that, how do you break down your forecasting time and what does it look like? Yeah, honestly, right now I do very little forecasting. I now have uh, three kids and uh, <laughs> trying to do a bunch of other stuff. But during the Good Judgment Project days, it 
I'm a, I'm a competitive guy. I wanted to see if I could win. I would probably spend an average of two hours a day, um, maybe even three hours a day. It was probably something in that range. You know, that was my um, effectively my video game to de-stress. It was uh, it was just a game that you're trying to win, um, but you just got the feedback over a very long period of time. And did you thinking about just the game? Part, did you like that the feedback came out over time or would it have been nice to have like some more short fused feedback as well rather than just long-term one like we've been forecasting now a while on metaculus and i think we just crossed three months on for metaculus monday so public forecast and i think in that period of time only three questions have closed and only two have resolved um yeah. yet and that kind of makes it in some ways difficult to sort of get feedback because you're, you can, you can always sort of do some postmortem before things have closed, but it's usually good to wait for the event to happen. And so do you think there should be sort of more short fuse forecasting too? Um, I think a mix is great. The, uh, I mean, the kind of feedback that I'm always most interested in as a forecaster and as an investor is the, is really my long-term forecasting. Um, when I when I make an investment, I'm always trying to think five to ten years um, into the future. That's just the kind of investor I am. Um, but the, the the huge challenge is if you are trying to make a ten year forecast, you don't get very many rounds of feedback during a lifetime. I mean, if you started at age zero and you lived to age eighty, you'd only get eight rounds of feedback in your entire life. And of course, no one starts at age zero. So that's, that's just one of these really tough um, challenges. I don't know any way around it. But I, I think short-term feedback's great because at least then you get something where you can make a, a correction and hopefully that helps your longer-term forecasts. But maybe that's not true. I'm not sure. And then just one more follow-up on that. Do you think there's a limit on how long term forecast can be. I remember reading a paper, I think when it was came to AI forecasting, looking at experts or could have been nuclear weapon development forecasting, where it's, I think after five or 10 years, forecast accuracy just kind of falls off a cliff. Um, do you sort of try to keep your long-term forecast limited to a certain duration or do you kind of just forecast any sort of duration? Um, I've, I've been... <clears throat> I've, I haven't been great about keeping uh, making super long-term forecasts. I know Metaculus has them, and I, I have not taken part in that um, as much as I probably should have. I, 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 I toy with the idea of doing it for investing, trying to predict companies' revenues 10 years from now, but I've also been bad at that. I, I'm, I'm thinking of trying to do that, but I've been thinking about that for a while and, <laughs> and haven't done it. So, for instance, for forecasts like, you know, trying to forecast revenues many, many years into the future, um, you know, these questions that are not very simple, is do you have sort of like a mental heuristic for how much time you'll spend um, on that initial forecast? Um, and does that change, you know, depending on if the question that you're approaching is um, easier, if it's more complex like this one? And how do you determine whether a question is going to be an easy one to forecast versus a complex one? Um, yeah, well, I, I think a lot of it just depends on your, um, 
on your background knowledge. So if it's something I know nothing about, it's obviously going to take me a lot longer to even make the simplest, most basic forecast. And if I know a lot about something already, then it might only take me a minute because um, I've already thought about it. Um, yeah, but I, maybe, maybe the one, maybe what you're getting at or maybe a nugget, it'd be, I, I think that there, I think there is value in even making um, five minute forecasts. You just have to be humble that, you've, hey, you've only looked at this complex thing for five minutes. So like really probably shouldn't have a very extreme view. And if there is a consensus, you really don't have the background to uh, diverge from the consensus by very much. If you, if you wanna make something that's off consensus, and there's a lot of smart people looking at it, like Do your due diligence. You, you have to spend, you know, days um, before you can do that. Yeah. So actually, just building on on top of that, in um, episode two of the Right Side of Maybe, we talked to David Mannheim, um, and we brought up this idea of a minimal valuable forecast as sort of the minimum amount of investment you have to put into a question to gain enough experience and calibration to sort of become a better forecaster. Um, and you had just talked about, you know, you can even do a five minute forecast, but it should therefore be uh, more so basing it off of maybe a community median and then finding your direction based on that and moderating on the extremes, maybe not going above 90% or going below 10% if you're putting in a very little amount of time. Um, what is your opinion on this idea of a minimal valuable forecast? And what do you think um, would be some of the characteristics um, of such a forecast, both from an investment and from a, a thinking perspective in terms of tackling a forecasting question? Yeah, I mean, I think you can, I think you can get valuable feedback really on any time scale. So I used to give myself these factual calibration quizzes where I would only spend, let's say, 20 seconds um, answering. And you know, you answer 40 of them, 20 minutes later, you get your calibration curve back. And I, I think you do get valuable feedback from that, even just spending 20 seconds. Um, you just have to be humble that you haven't spent much time and you don't really know very much. So you be very careful about being overconfident. Um, so I don't know, maybe I come down in a different place. I, 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 think, I think there can be value on on really all time scales. If, if you want to test whether you're <clears throat> beyond calibration, there's also this concept of discrimination. So um, in order to get a good discrimination score, I think you really need to, one, you need, to, you need a benchmark to compare against because otherwise it's very, um, I don't know what a calibration score in isolation, sorry, I don't know what a discrimination score in isolation would mean. And what is a discrimination score exactly? Or, or, or even a Breyer, maybe just keep it even simpler, a, a Breyer score. Like I, I could give myself um, questions about predicting the weather in my town and I could do that for a hundred days. I could get a calibration curve. I could also get a Breyer score. The calibration curve is really useful to me because I can see whether um, when I say 70%, it actually rains 70% of the time. But my Breyer score is really pretty meaningless in isolation because, okay, I got, let's say I got a, a 0.2 Breyer score. Is that good? Is that bad? Um, you really have no idea. You need um, 
other people or some kind of benchmark to compare against. Um, and so in order to, and, and that's a huge part of being a, a better forecaster, obviously, a better meteorologist. And in order to, to really judge yourself on that dimension, you need, you really do need to spend a lot of time because if you only spend 20 seconds on it, yeah, I'm not gonna be a good forecaster. Um, even if I'm perfectly calibrated, I still won't be a very good forecaster. So if you wanna find out if you're, you're good, you need someone to compete against and you need to spend time. So speaking of competition, that brings us to the main part of this week's episode of The Right Side of Maybe, which is going through your series of COVID forecasts. Um, okay. If you guys would like to follow along and see the, the questions that um, we'll be talking about, you can go to maybe, M-A-B-Y dot app, A-P-P slash COVID. Um, and this was really cool. So if I have it correct, you sort of set up a COVID forecasting competition, say, between yourself and a series of public health experts that were funded by the CDC. Um, and you had a series of questions regarding about COVID that I see is still going on. Um, and you had a series of questions and you calculate the Breyer scores for yourselves um, and the experts. And over time, you have come out on the right side of maybe more than um, the panel experts. Your Breyer score on average is a 0.246, while there is a 0.268, which I believe means on average you were five, seven and a half percent on average closer in the right direction, in the right direction uh, of positive resolution. Um, than the experts, which is quite uh, impressive. Um, could you give us a little bit more background in terms of what this forecasting competition was like uh, and how you approached the the range of forecasting questions, which ranged from how many deaths will there be in the United States or a particular state, um, as well as how many COVID cases there would be in a given week? Yeah. So um, really, it was a... Um, Tom McAndrew and, and Nicholas Reich, at, uh, who are two researchers at UMass, they um, basically asked these uh, forecasting questions to uh, between you know, 20 to 40 of their um, colleagues at you know, pretty prestigious places, Harvard, John Hopkins, these are all epidemiologists. All the questions were about um, COVID and they asked about five questions every week and uh, published them. And so basically what I did is I wanted to see if I, um, how I would do against the, their group of experts, whether you know a generalist like me by himself could compete um, against them, but someone who's a expert forecaster but knows nothing about disease. Um, so what I would do is I would just kind of in real time make forecasts on the same exact questions. And then once they resolved, I would um, give us both Breyer scores. So that, that's, that's how it came about. I had no control over the questions and, you know, they, I had no direct relationship with uh, the UMass researchers. I just did this by myself. Um, and so by now, all, it, it stopped. There were about 30 questions. Um, I, my my Breyer score ended up being better than um, their panel on uh, coronavirus. Um, 
forgot where I was going on this. What was the? Uh, well, how did you sort of approach these these yeah, these forecasting I, questions? Yeah, for COVID? yeah. So so for I mean, there's no there's no one size fits all, but uh, typical if you're if I was predicting deaths or something, I would look at the data. Um, typical, I, I might say, well, let's say it's an exponential. You can fit an exponential. That's probably an upper bound. I could say, what if it's linear? Um, I can set a lower bound. If I can, if you can quantify a fairly reasonable upper bound and lower bound, then I, um, you know, ask, well, which should it be closer to the lower or the upper bound? Um, are these models really good? Is it possible it goes above my upper bound or below my upper bound? And then, and then really spend a lot of time. Um, thinking about just the things that might not be in a model that you can't see from the data. Um, and and, and, and maybe, maybe, the most, maybe the most interesting thing, and this has served me well, both for the, the COVID forecasting and other forecasting, is, is forcing myself to write a pre-mortem. Um, so really going through and writing down, if I'm wrong, trying to honestly predict how that I'm going to make. And you know, if there was one forecasting tip I would give everybody, I would say that is it. Trying to actively disprove your forecast. Uh, in, in the investing, when I was doing investing before even Good Judgment Project, I would literally say, I really like this investment. I think it's gonna do great. And then I'd force myself to write the sketch of a letter to myself to be read by myself in five years if the investment turned out horribly. Mm-hmm. And that's just an incredibly, it, it's very, um, it takes an incredible amount of mental effort to really seriously do that because you're really, I'm forcing myself into a, into a world that, um, you know, conflicts with my true beliefs. Um, but I, I think that that served me incredibly well. Yeah, Balkan. I think Balkan Devlin, um, when he was on our weekly podcast, he had mentioned the idea of doing pre-mortems. Is that something that a lot of super forecasters do? Do you think that's something that distinguishes um, the supers from the non-supers on average? Yeah, no, I think so. I, I, I'll say that even... Um, I think it's tough to do a good pre-mortem. I think I see, I, even my, just talking about myself, I've caught myself trying to do pre-mortems and just kind of like going through the checklist, like, okay, I'll spend a minute, I'll do my pre-mortem. And honestly, I, that's useful, but it's not, it takes a lot of effort, at least for me, to do a real pre-mortem that's serious. And I don't know, I don't know how many people put in really, really serious effort to pre-mortems. Um, so I was wondering, did you do a pre-mortem for, um, oh, wrong one, for this question, how many U.S. states or ter- and territories will report more cases for September compared to June? Um, this is a question uh, where, I mean, everyone did quite poorly on, but um, yeah. this is your worst Breyer score of the bunch, uh, a 1.088. Um, this is out of a good judgment Breyer score out of two. Um, and I was wondering uh, what if you did a pre-mortem for that and how that ended up comparing to what your post-mortem was for that question. 
Yeah, I, well, I probably, um, we can find out because I, well, I tried to model good forecasting behavior um, and I wrote on Twitter, it's actually not on the website, but I wrote a little summary of my reasoning for every single one of those questions. But I'm being, I'm modeling very bad behavior because I didn't actually do a postmortem on it and go back and read it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Um, well, Shame it'd be great. <laughs> um, so moving on to some of the other questions, your best forecasts on average look like they were what the U.S. national COVID cases were. Um, what, why do you think, um, not, not only your best Briar score on average, but also I think the best difference between you and the experts. Um, why do you think that was the case, um, that that was your strongest forecast? Um, did you approach that question um, differently from other questions that um, led to that greater accuracy there? Um, so I think my answer to all of these things is probably going to be, it's just statistical noise. So, um, I think probably even if you looked at all 30 questions um, in aggregate, I think that that's the right thing to do. I don't think you can draw any, almost any conclusion from a single question or even two or three questions. Um, I think at the level, maybe what I'm saying is, so I, I came out on top of the competition, but if you asked me, what, if we reran this competition, what do you think you would win again, Tom? Um, my answer might be, maybe I have a two third. I would have a two thirds chance of winning, but that's the equivalent of me saying, "Well, I think I have a one third chance of losing." And so, I think, I just think that there's tremendous noise. Um, when I tried to do a simulation, um, I got an Excel spreadsheet. I said, "I imagine that there's two forecasters competing. A perfect forecaster." Um, who says the right probability on every single question, and a, an imperfect forecaster who is off by 10% on every single question. And I, now I have 100 questions. So you have a biased forecaster. And a... a biased forecaster on every single question off by 10% from the true probability. And I have 100 questions and I give them Breyer scores. And maybe I'll throw this, I don't, throw this question back to you guys. What do you think the probability that the perfect forecaster wins, um, meaning has the best Briar score in a hundred question tournament. It's ten percent bias, but in, in no discernible direction, right? It could be. It could be. Yeah, sure. It could be either direction, but it's off by exactly ten percent in either direction. Oh, Jesus, this is this is <laughs> one of those problems where the answer is going to be. Is gonna is gonna surprise you. I'm just gonna guess it's it's fifty fifty, off the bat. It'd probably be a bit higher, maybe like um, sixty five seventy. In terms yeah. of which one, Andrew? Who winning? The perfect forecaster. Yeah, well, the perfect yeah. So the perfect forecaster is gonna win more than the imperfect forecaster. Yeah. But um, the. So what, at least when I try to do this simulation, he, he would win 85% of the time. There you go, Andrew, um, looking at Which, um, it's, so I, I guess that I use that as a, as a benchmark because that's just saying, look, you, you could give people, in this coronavirus forecasting competition, there was only 30 questions. But 
we know that if there's a hundred question quiz and you're perfect and you're beating the other guy by 10% on every one, you're only going to win 85% of the time. 15% of the time you're going to lose, even though you're absolutely perfect. Um, I just think that that goes to show you, you just need a lot of questions before there's enough statistical significance to draw like a really firm conclusion about who's better. You know, after 30 questions, I think I'd be lying to myself if I said, oh, I'm, see, look, I'm better than the experts. I, I don't think I can say that, at least given the, um, the margin of victory. Maybe if it was a really massive blowout, you could say that. But, um, and then given that, I, given that I don't feel like I can say that after 30 questions, if you ask me like, oh, about any specific question, like why did you do better or worse? I mean, my answer is like, well, there's even way more noise with a single question than with 30. So I try really hard to, you know, any Duke has a, um, has a term, has a term that I think is really relevant, uh, resulting, where that once you know the outcome, um, it's really difficult to not say, like if you got a good outcome, it's really hard to not, there's a temptation to say, well, I made a good decision. And if I got a bad outcome, there's a temptation to say, well, I made a bad decision. And I think that that's a, um, a mistake and you can end up learning the wrong lessons. So again, I, I try really, really hard not to ever do that on any question. I try not to basically ignore the Breyer scores on the out for a question. And I, I the only thing I allow myself to think about are, you know, did I identify all the relevant facts? Did I identify in my pre-mortem all the relevant risks? You know, and did I, have consistent logic. And if I did all, all three of those things, in my head, I didn't make a mistake. Even if I got a terrible Breyer score, you can say, Tom, clearly, look, you got a horrible Breyer score compared to this other guy. I refuse to take blame. And, at this, and, and the flip side of that is, even if I crush someone on a, on a, um, on a question, I refuse to take credit for it. So that, that, those are kind of my little mental rules. Like I, I just refuse to take blame or credit on any on any individual question. So I want to go back a bit. Um, you know, speaking of getting better at forecasting, a lot of the forecasters that we've talked to um, on the right side of maybe and on the Global Guessing Weekly podcast have shared that there are a lot of small things that people can do to become a lot better at forecasting. It's just a matter of sort of education. Um, and one of those things, an example of one of those uh, from the bin paper was teaming. Um, and, you know, working with other people can, you know, increase your prior score. Yeah. You said that you looked at these forecasts, these COVID forecasts by yourself. I was wondering, was that a conscious decision? Um, and like, what was your thoughts about uh, working with other people on those forecasts? Yeah, actually, so that's the super fascinating thing. So I, I did all these COVID forecasts by myself. And actually, I'll tell you a, a great story. So in year three of Good Judgment Project, it was the, the first year I did it, I was in the control group which means I, um, I was totally isolated from everybody else. I got no feedback on what the group thought. Got, didn't get to see anyone's comments. Um, it was just me by myself for a year. Um, and I, I did very well in that. Became a super forecaster, went to this super forecasting uh, conference before year four started. And um, I was, my mind exploded when I found out how good the super teams had done 
on the same questions I had answered. They had absolutely, even though I was first in my cohort, the the super forecast, the other forecasters working together on teams just were so much better than I was. I I I, I couldn't believe it, honestly, at first. And I was a and I was a team skeptic. I remember sitting at a table with the other super forecasters. I had never been on a team before, and I was convinced that this was not you were not going to get better um, forecasts by teaming the supers that you would get better. I, I was totally convinced you'd get better forecasts by asking them all, all the super forecasters independently and then aggregating um, their forecasts, taking the median, as opposed to having them all be on a team and having them be able to talk. Um, because I thought there was going to be groupthink and that people were going to, or there's going to be a dominant personality or people were going to be lazy once they saw someone else present a good opinion. And so then I joined a team in year four, and it took me about two days before I realized I was completely, totally wrong. Um, it was just crystal clear, even before the outcome of any question, that you got much better forecasts by being on a team of other thoughtful forecasters, because I would write my rationale. And before there, no one would say anything, but now I had teammates and they would say, Tom, you, you, you forgot about this. What, what do you think about this? Have you considered this? And that feedback and that interaction um, was incredible. It, 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 was, it was just immediately obvious that you were gonna do better. And in fact, um, the team I joined, you know, ended up going on to, uh, to get the first place in year four. So that was that was super fun. That was one of the that was the one of the best team experiences of my of my life. It was it was great. It was everyone everyone was focused on a common goal. Everyone was really respectful, but there was never pressure to agree. Um, there was never pressure. There was no leader. There was no official leader saying, "Hey, you need to do this." It was just this uh, this group of people who were. Um, really fine with challenging each other and not taking it personally um, and being nice about it. Um, and so then going back to the COVID forecast, which you did these by yourselves, I, I, I know we just talked about how small sample set of questions, um, so difficult to sort of make any sort of generalizations about any particular forecasts. Um, but there were some that were like a, a series of forecasts. And so yeah. we can kind of look at trends in terms of Breyer's score. Uh, and actually, I, I, I got this one wrong when I first uh, was reviewing your questions because I didn't see that they were in reverse chronological order. Um, but one thing was with your COVID death forecast that those got less accurate over time. And I was just wondering if is one potential hypothesis that you were basing it on early models in the pandemic that had sort of incomplete testing numbers. And so the ratio between confirmed cases versus actual cases was off, which would therefore skew um, the COVID death rate that you were getting. And then over time, as testing capacity increased, you were then getting a more equal ratio between test positives and then fatalities that would then come four to six weeks later. Um, do you think that could have been attributed to the loss? Do you think it's just noise and we're looking too granular in, in terms of trends? Um, yeah, I, so I would not, again, my, my little rule is I wouldn't look at any of the Breyer scores. I wouldn't, I'd worry I'd draw the wrong conclusions, but I, I don't, I don't want to dodge complete responsibility. The, the biggest mistake um, 
that I made was I, the, the IHME for a while had a model before other people had models. Um, and I did not fully understand all the assumptions that went into it. And I got lulled into a uh, false um, sense of confidence um, in believing, putting too much weight on what the IHME um, was saying. And I mean, in retrospect, it's pretty clear what my mistake was. I didn't understand the assumptions that were going into it. And that, that's something I could have done. That's something I, I probably, you know, to be slightly fair to myself, if I had spent more time on it, I think I would have dug into that. Um, but I didn't. But I should have known that, hey, Tom, I, you don't know the assumptions to this model. You really should not trust it as much as I did. That was a mistake. I, I the, the IHME did really well for like about a, a month early on. Mm -hmm. And then I said, oh, these guys got it nailed. And, and I started I started trusting it again based on its track record, not too much without understanding the, the causal, how it was working. So that, that, was, that was a huge error on my part. And I, actually, I think that, that that's kind of a common error we see even in finance, people make these investing models. And I, I'd, I'd seen this in investing before. And then it works for a little while and you come to think that that's a true model of the world. And you, you start to um, forget the assumptions that go into it and how those assumptions might be bad. Speaking of that IMHE model, that's one that has definitely gotten a lot of media uh, attention as well. And one that was sort of drew, drew a lot of, uh, was was a, a driving factor behind a lot of the the media headlines um, throughout the past pandemic. Um, that model has shown up quite a lot. Um, do you think that there should be more done on the part of the media to understand the assumptions of models, as well as tracking um, the track record of these models when they're reporting them in the news? Because um, I believe it was the IMHE model that was used quite a lot to give a lot of um, dire sort of forecast in like the middle of last year and a lot of them didn't sort of pan out and do you think that how models are being used in the media and how sort of track records are do you think there needs to be uh, better work done on that uh, when it comes to reporting um, I, I don't have any strong opinion but I, I'd always love to see people talk about the assumptions that go into any model and how and how those assumptions might be wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned that your sort of your weakness of your forecast was relying on that model. What do you think was the greatest strength of your approach to COVID forecasting and that other people forecasting COVID could have learned through your experience? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I don't spend as much time thinking about what I do right. I spend a lot more time thinking about what I do wrong. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have a good canned, uh, canned response. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the maybe one of the mistakes early on is people assuming a linear model of growth of cases as opposed to an exponential. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't have anything beyond that. I think people picked up on that eventually. Hmm? 
Um, are there things that you uh, have, have sort of picked up or learned from other super forecasters that you know you used in these forecasts that you plan to use in the future? Um, yeah, like, do you have people that you collaborate with, or you know, certain people that you know you borrowed from or should best practices with? Or did you also learn things from other COVID forecasters out there as well, not just super forecasters? Hmm. Uh, don't. I don't have any great great answers. I, I basically I did the I did the COVID forecasting um, when these questions were coming out, and then basically stopped um, once the questions stopped being launched. So that was probably June of last year. I basically went cold turkey and just uh, waited for the results to come in. Yeah, I don't have a great don't have a great answer. Problem. <laughs> um, Okay, so that was really fascinating. Um, and we're going to have a lot of links in the description of this video, um, you know, so people can go and look at your forecast themselves and, you know, maybe go over them as they watch the, watch the interview to have a better understanding of the thinking behind them. Um, but now we're going to go into the concluding questions um, that we have, and we just have a couple, so it shouldn't take too much of your time, Tom. Um, but the first one is, you know, do you have any recommendations for other forecasters who, like you, want to be on the right side of maybe more often than they are right now? Um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman is uh, an awesome book. Um, I mean, I have, I have a whole bunch. Of, the, Michael Malbison wrote, wrote some great books. Um, practice, I think there's no, there's no substitute for, for doing practice. You, Maybe the key message is, you know, if you don't, if you don't do a calibration quiz, there's really absolutely no way for you to know if you're properly calibrated because everyone looks at themselves in the mirror and says, of course, I'm properly calibrated. I mean, that's the way I was. And then you, the only, really the only way to know is to, to do a quiz to get feedback and, um, and learn if in fact you are. So I think it's, I think there's no substitute for actually doing it getting the feedback um, and learning about yourself. And then um, actually this is quite timely because on Monday, um, Scott Alexander on his new blog, Astral Codex 10, just released his list of predictions for 2021. Uh, and included that is a series of personal forecasts about his personal life as well as his work life. Um, do your forecasting skills and forecasting practice have any impact on your personal life? Uh, do you make forecast about your private or professional life? Um, and are doing those forecasts easier or harder? Are they just different? Yeah, I, I don't forecast on my private life. Um, and I think that there's a, I think that there is a, fun, a fundamental challenge even to any organization bringing forecasting in that I've seen firsthand is when you can affect the outcome, it, you, you get some very weird psychological effects um, going on because your, your forecast can affect maybe how hard you try to do it or even worse, I, and, I, and I've seen this even firsthand, let's say you have a group of people and you're forecasting um, in a business context, hey, will this product, um, sell sell a lot or not or how much will it sell and i i, I was on the uh 
this actually happened. I, I, I offered a, a pessimistic uh, forecast and I tried to make it, 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 it's very uncomfortable because other people can say, well, Tom, you're being, you're being pessimistic because you don't believe in our ability and that's kind of demoralizing. And I tried to make it really, really clear, like, oh no, I'm like, not because of our team. It's like, I just don't think there's gonna be demand for this product that we're trying to make. Um, but it ends up uh, creating, creating tension and, it, and then I, I think maybe it creates the perception if you, if you were in a group forecasting, hey, what, what, maybe, maybe you two guys were forecasting like, hey, how's this podcast gonna, gonna do? And let's say you were the one who was on the low end. Well, then your partner might be like, wow, is, is this guy trying to like tank this forecast so that he gets a better uh, Briar score because he doesn't want people to do it and he wants to uh, be at the top of the leaderboard? It, it creates these weird incentives. Um, I think it may even create some mistrust between people. So I've actually kind of come to the conclusion. I mean, that, look, at maybe we were trying to help organizations bring forecasting in and have it be useful to them. And I think my recommendation has always been to start off, really don't forecast anything that your organization has where your organization has control over the outcome. Um, try to forecast things that are relevant to your organization, but really outside of your control. More like so market maybe, specific? Like maybe, maybe you're a pharma company and you really care about uh, whether uh, a regulation is going to be passed. And that's super relevant to your, um, to your, to your business. That, that's an ideal thing to forecast. Because then, you know, if I forecast high or low, my teammates aren't going to say like, oh, Tom, now Tom's not trying hard because I look, I have no control over whether that legislation gets passed or not. So I, so that's what I, that's kind of a, a subtle lesson that I've seen um, crop up a bunch of places. So as a first step to making forecasting more useful in the world, I would say don't forecast on anything where you have the control, control over the outcome. So like, uh, if, if, if like, I'm like Elon Musk, I would want to forecast, like, will the US government, you know, um, give out funds for private, you know, space contracting companies rather than will my next booster rocket have a successful launch, it's getting sort of de detaching yourself and putting it on like a different level. So that would some... be my recommendation. Yeah, because imagine you're Elon Musk, and you, then you're like, super pessimistic about that probability of success. Well, then you might, you might inadvertently end up demoralizing all your employees. I, I just think that there's these weird psychological risks that come into play. And then just quickly, you know, given your work with maybe, I was curious as to what your, how you see the future of forecasting, um, sort of like progressing. Are companies seemingly receptive to this um, idea of forecasting that may be different from how they did things internally before? Or, have you seen a lot of pushback against a lot of um, sort of the stuff that we all like and are interested in, you know, like related to the science of forecasting? Like where, where are people today? I get so what I, what I see, the conclusions I've come to are that almost everyone who I talk to will agree that you can do these um, forecasting methods and it will improve group forecasts, that it actually works, that you can empirically measure that 
the group comes to better forecasts. So I, I feel like we've done this. We don't probably don't have enough data to say that definitively, but anecdotally, that's what I have seen. And I think everyone basically agrees with it, but it is shockingly hard um, for groups to adopt it. And I think it, I think it comes about because you're asking people to make, at least when it comes to trying to do forecasting in an organization, they, um, it requires a behavior change. You have to run a meeting differently. You have to sell your um, colleagues on it. Maybe you have to sell your boss on it. And that's just a big hurdle. Um, so I guess my personal forecast is that forecasting as it becomes more mainstream will um, will be more broadly adopted, much more broadly adopted five to 10 years from now. But I'd also say things take longer than it seems like they should. So I, I thought forecasting was really going to take off and I think it's, it's gonna just take a while. You just have to be patient for it to, for it to uh, make its way into organizations and make its way into government decision-making. So you said five to 10 years, what is the resolution criteria on uh, much more adoption and what's the likelihood on that? Yeah, yeah, well, we didn't talk about that. I don't know how to write, yeah, that's a whole other, how to convert that into a firm a firm forecast, I don't know. Yeah, we need a resolution criteria to actually uh, grade me on this. Um, well, Tom, this has been, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom, both on forecasting as well as going deep with us. Uh, in your COVID forecasting. Um, for the listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode, um, you'll want to tune in again this Saturday, uh, next week, Saturday, sorry, when both Tom uh, Lipte, who's been here today, as well as his business partner, business partner, sorry, Michael Story, will be joining us for the Global Guessing Weekly Podcast, where they'll be talking to us a little bit more about their background, their work with good judgment, and maybe forecasting. Uh, Tom, where can our listeners find you? Um, I, I occasionally send out tweets on uh, Twitter. Um, yeah, or you can uh, always send me an email, uh, tlipte at gmail.com. Always happy to talk forecasting. And you can find maybe over at maybe.app as well. Oh, I'm not sharing that right as well, but it's maby.app. Uh, yeah, maybe the quick quick pitch is, hey, there's, a, there's an app out there. Um, it's free. You can write questions and you can run an automated Delphi method with your group of friends where you can make anonymous comments, um, vote on each other's comments. So it can remove some of these biases and decision making and remove some of the group think by um, reading comments without knowing who said it. And then ultimately it, it creates a scoreboard and a calibration curve. So you can find out if you are calibrated. On, on real world, world questions that matter to you. And again, right now, basically it's free. This is a side project for us. Um, we're just delighted if anyone uses it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you everyone. This has been The Right Side of Maybe um, with our guest, Tom Lipte. Um, and that is perfect timing. So thank you everyone. Have a good one. Uh, thank you guys. Appreciate right. it.